Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Black Hole Cinema. This is part two of our monthly roundup. Um, I'm Dan Taylor and I'm still joined by Chris Haig. Uh, but joining us in part two is the man himself, Mr. Tony Black. Hello, Tony. Hello to you both. How are you both? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I asked Chris in part one, uh, March. Good month or bad month? I think it's been a really good month, actually. I think I think it's been the best March for a while. Mm. I, th- I think there's been a real mix of of films that are blockbusters, yeah, you know, but also some actually really good, I wouldn't say indie films, but I'd say critically, critically acclaimed films as well, mm. that aren't, that aren't too niche no. to be completely not seen by anybody. So yeah, I'm, I think it's been really good, actually. On this uh, episode, we'll be talking, obviously, about Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Um, we mentioned The Witch, that will be coming up, and High Rise, um, starring Tom Hiddleston. Uh, but first up, we've got 10 Cloverfield Lane. What are you going to do to me? I'm going to keep you alive. You were in an accident, and I saved your life by bringing you here. And everyone outside of here is dead. After getting in a car accident, a woman is held in a shelter with two men who claim the outside world is affected by a widespread chemical attack. Now, that's a very brief premise, but for those that are uh, aware of the Cloverfield franchise, as it were, because um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a third one. Um, Cloverfield obviously released back in 2008, uh, directed by uh, Matt Reeves, um, and kind of the... Um, the child of, of J.J. Abrams. Um, I don't know how active he was uh, in this film, uh, directed by Dan Trattenberg, um, but it's kind of got his fingerprints there. Um, John Goodman uh, stars in this one alongside uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Gallagher Jr. Um, as the kind of three uh, people that are underneath in a kind of bomb shelter makeshift uh, homemade DIY bomb shelter um, as John Goodman's character had predicted the kind of end of the world type scenario that we see ourselves in um, in, in this film. Uh, you saw this one Chris, what did you think? I really really enjoyed it, I mean I'm someone who saw Cloverfield the first time around and I was completely head over heels for it because it was kind of an inventive way of looking at a monster movie and it's quite weird that this bears the club filled out because it doesn't bear any connection to it literally none I mean I think the director Dan Trachtenberg has said that it basically it's really weird what he said which is like oh it takes place in the same world but in a different universe so I'm there just like so it doesn't connect anyway 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we get the little geeky stuff like slushers in it and um, the stuff in like the uh, ARG that they've built up around uh, the first global field and the second global field. Um, but if you look at it on its own as a standalone thriller with sci-fi elements in it, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, I know people have complained a bit about the ending because it basically goes two, I mean two thirds, but like three quarters of the film is one thing. And mm. then for the last 20 minutes, very, it, very different. Take, it not exactly derailed, but it becomes a completely different kind of beast. Um, but I, I did, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, um, I'm very open to the fact that I took my mum to go see it, because <laughs> she's the one who'll go to scary films with me. Um, and I kind of knew it was the kind of yardstick, because she, if she, if she finds the plot confusing, then she'll be open and she'll be like, well, I didn't get it, and shit, and all that sort of thing. But she really enjoyed it, and it was a really um, enjoyable kind of exploration in uh, paranoia, in you know how um, people like this live, because you know these um, I don't know the actual word for them, they're like survival survivalists. They're like they have loads of shows on like Discovery Channel and stuff. All these mm. preppers—that's the word. All these people are kind of prepping for the apocalypse and all that sort of thing. So it was really interesting to see uh, John Goodman in. Arguably one of the best performances he's ever had done, because mm. he does become, and he he does kind of flip it on a switch really, in that he can be extremely charming and friendly, and you think, oh okay, this is the guy who was in so many films that I enjoyed as a teenager and blah 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 that sort of thing, and in an instant he becomes a, a, an abuser, he becomes a complete sociopath, he becomes yeah. completely unhinged and villainous, um, and you do start to journey with. Uh, Michelle, Mary Elizabeth Winston's character, into is she safer inside or outside? Yeah. Um, and she ultimately makes the choice that she, no matter what, she has to she, she, she has to get out, so she starts bombing her plan and all that sort of thing. Um, I really enjoyed the character of Michelle. I mean, they brought in the guy who wrote Whiplash for the original script. The original script was called Valencia, I think, and then it had a completely different <coughs> completely different tone and ending and all that sort of thing. And they've kind of reworked it to fit into the Cloverfield universe and everything. Um, but they really do give the three leads a lot to do. So you do have Michelle who from, from the get-go, and this is quite refreshing, she is a strong um, talented kind of survivor. She's very ingenious and she is quite intuitive and she thinks, right, okay, what can I do? And she's quite adaptable. And that's all really nice to see the character. Um, Emmett just breaks your heart. In the middle of the film, there's a scene between him and Michelle, and it's adding layers onto the character and everything, and it does genuinely affect you emotionally, mm. and I was really impressed with that. And then, of course, the standout has to be John Goodman, who um, is this kind of... He, he's a Machiavellian figure who looks like everybody's next-door neighbour. Yeah. And, and the fact that the, the, the twist and the kind of uncertainty about... Um, is has there been another occupant in this bunker before? Is there something you know else going on with um, Howard's character and all that sort of thing? Um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I understand why people found it a bit divisive. I understand why people have been a bit like, well, it was. It seemed like it was going to be a straightforward thriller, and then they just kind of tacked the sci-fi on at the end. I understand why people are annoyed by that, but. Yeah, I think it's seeded in quite well, and it is a quite tight, it's quite taut, 
Um, I love the fact, and it reminds me a bit of, um, this is going to sound really weird, but it reminds me a bit of Hot Fuzz. <laughs> it's simply the fact there is so much foreshadowing and setting up of everything. There's yeah. so many Chekhov's guns in it, and I'm like, oh, okay, I can kind of appreciate that, because it doesn't feel sloppy, it feels very tight, it feels very compact, and it feels very kind of, okay, so we're setting this up for this, and this is setting up for this, and da 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 And it, it rounds along at a great pace. Um, so yeah, I really, really um, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Do you think Howard knew what was going on outside, or do you, or do you kind of think it was partly a ruse? I well, there's several there's several questions really because it's like, did Howard intentionally crash into Michelle? That issue was never it's mm-hmm. implied, but it's never actually stated whether or not he did. Mm-hmm. Um, there's is I mean one question I actually had and someone can answer this is his daughter real? In the ARG it is, but you kind of you're left with a bit of does he even have a daughter or is this all for like pretense that sort of thing? Yeah. History? Of uh, I think character I think called, she's called Brittany. That's never resolved. Yeah. Um, so it it does leave a few questions kind of dangling, but they're more human ones. I mean, in the end, the sci-fi element doesn't really mm. matter in a way because well, you're so involved in the show. Emmett Emmett's character does seem to confirm that he mm, yeah that, that that that's real that he did have um, you know a wife and daughter and and obviously his kind of psychosis push them away um and obviously we mentioned about this this potential other occupant um in there but the fact that that happened before almost leads me to believe that has he done this before you know is this the second time he's doing this kind of end of the world situation with this this young woman um and actually he's completely oblivious to what is actually going on outside i don't Mm, know maybe it would be interesting if it's like He's doing it like a generational thing. He's like, right, well, that didn't work last time. I'm going to drive out and do all that sort of thing. Because if he's driven out and literally seen Michelle run into her and he knows that the air's breathable, then that begs the question as to why he was so... You can't go outside, you can't go outside, that sort of thing. Mm. Because if it's part of a manipulative game, and he's like, no, I I know someone's out there, so I have to kind of push them enough to... Yeah. Well, you know, obviously we see the pigs... There's no yeah. question to say he didn't kill them himself. Um, yeah. And obviously, um, and that's what I mean about the fact that you question all the way through, and it's not until she goes outside that yeah. then actually you're like, oh, okay. And then, then that makes you question again about, as I said, there's so many questions that you could look at it in so many different ways. And yeah. that's what's really interesting about it. Um, Tony, did you get a chance to, to catch this one? Yeah, I did. I, I think I think Chris is absolutely right in almost all of what he says, really, there. Um, really liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was clever. I thought it was really different from the first Cloverfield, which I think they needed to do because they'd done the fan footage monster thing with Cloverfield and to just repeat the trick again would have just been to lesser mm. returns, really. And this is, you know, it's partly because of the fact that it was called, it was originally a script called The Seller and then Damien Chazelle came on, did a rewrite and then they tagged on, as Chris said, that, that last 20 minutes, which totally doesn't fit, but it, it it's, it works. It, it concludes the film, although there's a better um, alternate uh, version of the ending, which I don't know if they filmed or not, which very much involves a, a chase around that house involving Howard and, and still being the villain. And it doesn't re- it only hints at the aliens at the end, which I think would have been better. But I think overall, it's really good. It's really tight. It's well scripted. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is great. And it's uh, it, and John Goodman, he's 
terrific. I and mean, you know, he's absolutely fantastic because he plays a character who is outwardly monstrous, but he's actually really broken. Really, he's psychologically broken, and he's he's just messed up more than anything else. What he does is horrible, but he is just messed up, and a lot of it is to do with what's happened outside. So it it does it does a lot of things, and it's it, it's it's not it's 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 nice it's nicely compact and well and well done, and it does suggest a Cloverfield franchise, which I quite like the idea of the being. If it's like an anthology kind of thing, it would be nice if it does different things each time, because I, I think there's, there's room for that, and. The other thing I love about this is that the the marketing of it, of it was fantastic. You know, yeah. it came almost out of nowhere, but also the trailer was exactly what a trailer should be because it only showed you like the first half an hour of that film, effectively first forty five minutes, and it kept so much back, and it showed you just enough to tease you without telling you anything else. And and you know, so many people could take a leaf out of that book because yeah. it just. It doesn't do all the horror, ridiculous things that a lot of trailers do now by showing you the entire film. So, yeah, real triumph. Really enjoyed it. Do, do you think that the, the tagged on ending, uh, you know, do you think it was out of place? Um, or do you think it was kind of important because it was trying to tie it in, itself into this uh, franchise or this, this anthology? No, I don't think they needed it. I think I think they could have. I think they could have done something. I think they could have stuck to their 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 guts really and not because they they they've done that on just to make sure that people get the the idea that yeah it's Cloverfield yeah it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the next stage after the monster came down and and then you know presumably called all his alien mates and they turned up. I just it, it's it's the easy way out really and it's it's the easy way to conclude a movie that they didn't really know how to end and the original idea. If you, like I say, you can find it online. There's descriptions of it. It sounds much more in tone and in step with the film. But the only thing is, it would have had a lot of people going, "Well, where was the aliens? Where was the monster?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they were afraid of. I think the irony being that they didn't show any of that in the trailer, so they could have probably got away with it. Actually, <laughs> so that's Ten Cloverfield Lane. Make sure you do go out and see that one. But up next, we have The Witch. Let's leave to the point. This is witchcraft. <laughs> Who's there? New England, 1630, William and Catherine led a devout Christian life, homesteading on the edge of an impassable wilderness with five children. When their newborn son mysteriously vanishes and their crops fail, the family begins to turn on one another. The witch is a chilling portrait of a family unravelling within their own fears and anxieties, leaving them prey for an inescapable evil. It was very, very different to what I thought it was going to be. I saw this at 9.45, or that was supposedly the time it was supposed to start, um, but the bloody Royal Opera House ran over, so I think it was about 10.15 by the time the actual film started. And I was expecting a traditional scare, horror, jump and hide underneath your seats and have nightmares for the rest of your life um, type film, um, because that's that's kind of what I'd heard, and the marketing particularly the poster uh suggests exactly that but that's not the film we've got is it tony no and i think the the marketing is the fact that they didn't know how to market this film really because it's it doesn't follow the normal patterns and the normal tropes of a horror film you know to call it a horror film is slightly i think disingenuous really because 
it is a horror film, but it's not horrific in the traditional sense that when, you know, when people say horror movie these days, they expect, you know, teenagers running away from things or they expect um, something full of blood and gore. It doesn't do that. It's much more of a psychological chiller, really, which is the main reason that I loved it, to be honest, because it, it's in the very much in the vein of the kind of things that I just I can't get enough of, like The Shining and stuff like that, that are... You know, and The Shining is a big influence on Robert Eggers, who, who, who wrote and directed this film. Amazingly, this is his debut film as well, so he's really hit the high notes straight away. Um, and it, it's it's a really creeping hour and forty minutes, or however long it is. That is is all about. Uh, it's about the complete destruction of a family through their own, effectively, their own mass hysteria and their own paranoia, mm. really, because, you know, this it's uh, Ralph Innocent, who amazingly was Finchy in The Office, and you wouldn't know it, right, when you, when you see this man, because he, uh, he's a world away from that kind of leering northern, you know, idiot that he, he, he's well, mostly known for, and he plays the head of this this family um, in New England, and it's it, of an age where they, they speak in, in, a, in an old world British, so it's, it, they don't speak as, as traditional people do today. They, they speak in the traditional era language of the time, which is, which immerses you even more. It was difficult at first. It was jarring, but yeah. it's strange. Within 15, 20 minutes, it, you almost forget that and you're completely immersed into the film that you understand everything they're saying, even though really you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You kind of pick, it's a bit like Shakespeare, mm. you know, in the end you pick up the meanings through, through a lot through their actions and, you know, he's, he, due to his actions, they get they get ostracised effectively from the, from the, the community, and they they are literally out in the wilderness, and then they have to face up to a the potential of this witch in the in the woods, and also what's going on in their own family and their own absolute devotion to God in the face of everything else, in the face of a, a, a winter where they're they're not going to get any crops in the face of the fact that their kids are effectively being corrupted. Like the son is, is tempted by, even by his sister, you know, he keeps looking at her chest and she's, she's in the throes of, of becoming a woman. Um, and he's, they're, they're obsessed with sin. They're obsessed with avoiding sin to the point where they don't do anything. It's a pure puritanical kind of way of life. And, um, you've got Kate Dickey, who's uh, best known as, um, uh, Lysa Aaron in Game of Thrones. And she was incredibly hysterical kind of character then. And she does that here and she's brilliant at it because she just is the terrible, terrified warrior of, of what's happening in her family. And she spends most of the film in absolute torment because of something that happens at the very beginning, something horrific that happens at the very beginning. That's, that means there's no doubt there is a witch. There is no doubt there is something out there, but it's not really yeah. about that. And if, if you go in expecting, you know, lots of jump scares and there are jumps in it, but they're not, traditional jumps it's not about somebody hunting down a witch or a witch coming and doing all these things it's about what the fear of, of not just a witch but this family's own sin over various different things not just the witch it's about what that fear does to them and in the end they end up ultimately without spoiling anything they end up destroying themselves because mm. of it and it's so it just gets under your skin for loads of i mean the score is, is a big reason as well the music in it is really unnerving and creeping and the coupled with the performances and coupled with the the script which is really sparse the direction's really cold and 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 tight and tense it just by the end 
your nerves are shattered, but not in the traditional horror yeah. way. And I just, I thought it was fantastic. And I, I, I left there thinking that's what, that's what I like from, from a, from a horror film, from mm. a chiller, because I just felt chilled. But Ralph Inson, I think is fantastic. His voice it's haunting in itself. You know, yeah. he's, he's, um, you know, reciting these, these, these sermons and, and these kind of lines from, from the Bible. And, um, there it's almost, I almost kept thinking he's the witch. He's the witch. <laughs> he is him all along. <laughs> and obviously, you know, that's, that's baloney, but his voice is so fantastic. Um, in this, um, Anya Taylor joy, I think she does a really good job. Um, because she's got yeah. quite a difficult role where, um, actually, she's the most sane person in in the bunch of them. Um, because she's the she's the one that questions, I guess, their faith. Um, more than anybody. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the twins are too young not to know any different, and um, um, obviously Caleb's kind of taken out of the um the family, as it were, early on, so that we don't get to kind of see that side of him. And, and these parents, obviously, they're so devoted, uh, they're so devoted to their, to their religion and to their faith, um, that they, they're, they're willing to question their own children. They're, they're willing to yeah. believe that they are actually consumed by the devil, um, that they, uh, that they actually turn on them and, and they, they, they lock them up. In, in a barn in, in the middle of winter. Um, and, but it, but it's, I think, from, you know, from, from, I, you know, I remember back doing history several, well, about 10 years ago now, that's not showing my age. <laughs> um, that, um, it's, it's actually a very honest kind of portrayal of what it was like. Faith was so important that people would yeah. literally lay down their lives. Uh, because of what they believed in. And, you know, we, we know what happened in, you know, in Salem, et cetera. And, you know, while obviously we question whether that was actually real or whether it was just people's paranoia and psychosis, um, you know, is, is left to be argued. But th- this film does such a good job of, of proving why those things were so dangerous because actually the people themselves are more dangerous than this physical presence that actually is yeah. in this film. It is real. You know, there is a, there is a witch in the woods, but actually their own faith is, is more dangerous than, than she is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's their own fear that, that destroys them. And it, and it's, I think what, what this film really does well and what it manages to do is to cre- create such an alien kind of, of system that, that is very difficult for people in our age and our society and our way of life now to understand. It feels very alien. The, the, the way they, the way they approach life, the way they approach their existence, the way they approach everything they do and their relationships with their children and their relationships with their family and their white husband and their wife is so far away from what the way we live now that it's, it's such a successful historical mm. document. This it, it's, it's almost like watching, it's almost like traveling back through time and watching a yeah. family. Because it is, it is so accurate in terms of the kind of religious fervor that these people lived under. And it's, it's terrifying. That's the scariest thing because you think to yourself, you know, they put so much emphasis on something that they can't prove, but they believe in so, so desperately. And it's both God and the mm-hmm. devil. And their fear of corruption and sin is what drives them to increasingly paranoid and terrified acts. And it's in that, in a way, that's what exacerbates 
what happens to the family because it's almost like the evil that does exist feeds on it. And the more they get like this, the, the worse things happen. And there's some really horrible, terrifying things later in the film that take place. Um, and it, it, you get the, and I, always, I, I kept thinking all the way through that if they, if they were rational about everything, a lot of this could have been avoided. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. And, you know, and you, even though it's a very alien situation in that sense, you can apply it in many ways to, to things in the modern day in certain respects about mass hysteria and about fear of, of religion, of paranoia and all kinds of things that, that whip people up into such a frenzy that they lose the sight of what really is there. And that's what happens here. So that's The Witch? <laughs> in, in other words, Chris, go and see it because it's, it's tremendous. Say, you haven't really sold it to me. So I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite an in-depth conversation. And I feel like it's um, just about to get even more um, in-depth as we... Ben Wheatley's High Rise. For all its inconveniences, Lang was satisfied with life in the High Rise, ready to move forward and explore life. How exactly? He had not yet decided. I'm so sorry. I'll survive. I thought you were empty. I just moved in. You're an excellent specimen. Why don't you come up later and have a drink? You don't know how things work around here, do you? I'm a fast learner. Ben Wheatley's J.G. Ballard adaptation starring Tom Hiddleston as a young doctor named Lang who joins a community in a luxury building in Thatcher's England who exile themselves from society and gradually divide into violent tribes. We were just talking about this. It's a very difficult film to pin down in a few lines. and I really struggle to get a synopsis or summary, shall we say, um, for this one. Um, and even even that doesn't really pin down what this film's about. Um, there's so many things going on. And for anybody um, that is aware of uh, Ballard's um, work, will know that um, his work uh, will know his novels are always a little bit difficult to um kind of describe in in a few words and this film does exactly that and ben wheatley creates a, a fantastic universe that we we become immersed in um and to kind of sum it up um as kind of an audience's perspective uh we've got this high-rise building in you're not quite sure what kind of universe it's in you know obviously that that summary said it was in um you know thatcher's england and while obviously uh, the residents are uh, english and it does seem to be set in kind of the 70s or 80s it doesn't seem to be set in the 70s and 80s that we know um it is set in a high-rise building where the poorest of society uh, live on the bottom floors and as we move up, we go into the middle class and on the top, um, you've got the upper classes, including uh, the architect of the building, um, who is kind of this almost godlike figure uh, played fantastically by Jeremy Irons. Um, and it's got a really, really, really solid cast, um, actually, with, as I said, Tom Hiddleston, uh, Sienna Miller, uh, Keely Hawes, uh, Elizabeth Moss. Um, it's kind of a nice mix of kind of big screen stars and, um, and small screen stars as well. Obviously, Elizabeth Moss, uh, Mad Men, Keely Hawes of um, Ashes to Ashes and, and Spooks and various other BBC dramas. Um, so it's a nice mix um, of actors, but it works really, really well. Um, 
Tony, I know you've got an opinion, so I'll let you start off. <laughs> it's, it's a good opinion in the sense of uh, that's not a quality thing I'm talking about in terms of, yeah. you know, I'm talking about the fact that it's uh, it's a, well, I, I will put out there that I think if this isn't my film of the year, then something's going to have to work very hard to unseat it now. Mm. Because I I thought this was, quite honestly, I think it's a masterpiece. And I th- I think it's it's as close to as good a film I've seen in a long time, really. I think the, the, the what I mean, I've not read the book, so I don't know about whether it's faithful. I've, I've heard it's very faithful to the source material, which has been very difficult to do because it's supposedly unfilmable for a long time. And um, Ben Wheatley has talked a lot about how how they they had to they they've had to do a lot of of work to get to a point where they. They had a good script, you know. He he, he writes it and, and effectively directs it as well with with his wife and his co-producing partner Amy Jump. So it's a very much a collaborative thing, and you see those their names together at the very end, um, to the point where it's very symbiotic. So it's very much their film. And I think what's great about High Rise is that it's very difficult to pin down as one thing or another because it's saying so much. You know, I came out I came out of it, and my my girlfriend said to me, she was with me, and she went, "That was mad." In in a good way, and I, and I said, yeah, it's going to take a few viewings. Mm. I thought I was, I thought I was tripping balls if I was honest. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there's a lot of that, and it's it, it felt very much like he was channeling people like John Borman and Ken Russell and uh, quite a bit of Kubrick at, in places. You know, it, it felt like he's talked about as well how much of a fan he is of Zardoz, which we did on Pick a Flick a couple of months ago, which is a defiantly bizarre film from the 70s with Sean Connery by John Borman. Um, which covers similar kind of ideas about society in many respects. It's, and it's batshit mental, right? It's Sean Connery walking around <laughs> in a nappy for an hour and a half. It's mad, but it, it, it's a flawed, it's not nearly as good as this in my opinion, but it's flawed genius in some respects because it doesn't do anything conventionally. And this is one of those films. And you can tell that Wheatley's a massive fan of that stuff because even though it's set in, in what to me is the seventies in a kind of retro futurist kind of seventies, it's the seventies that, people in the 50s might have thought the 70s was going to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's that. It's it's almost, it's not like steampunk. I don't mean it's retro punk. It's kind of like, it's about the past thinking about what the future is. And that's why the high rise is this, you know, it's this idea, ideological construct of society. The building is really what's, is really a representation of society. That's why the building all the way through is this, symbiotic like an organism almost that everybody's tethered to you know and you've got people like royal the um the architect talking about how say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. 
Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He talks about the building in terms of it being something conscious, like the buildings. He says the building's settling or the building's doing this he doesn't talk about it like a building he talks about it like a like a thing and it is the it is the main character really everyone else involved is just part of what it is and it is society it is the upper classes the lower classes the people in the middle although the lower classes aren't the lower classes that's the point mm. they're all middle class manager types you know luke evans is he's a he's an angry man he's a boorish sexist but he's also a manager. He works for a TV company. He's not a lower class. Nobody who's lower class can afford to live there in the first place. Yet that's where the absurdity of it comes in and the eccentricity of it, which is all the way through the film, in that the fact is, A, they're, they're, they're fighting over nothing, really, and B, they can always leave. You know, they're not in a prison. Nobody, when everything starts to go mad, when the... When the strikes kick in and, and their, their bins don't get taken away and the power starts to fall, fail, they, they don't leave. They choose to stay there and they choose to let themselves basically fall into ruin and murder and violence. Yeah. And they, they all choose this and they, they fall into a pattern of chaos, which is what the, the book is suggesting society would become because everybody is striving for a higher place on the ladder. They're striving to get up that tower, up that building like they're striving to do in society. Mm. And when you said in the, the Telegraph described it as, as a Thatcherist Britain, I don't think it is. I think it's on the verge yeah. of the Thatcherist Britain, yeah. which is why at the very end you hear her over the radio. And, and it's, 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 as, it's as searing an indictment of what she's about to create as anything else, because that's Wheatley and Ballard are clearly lib- liberal to the, to the max, and they hate what Thatcher built. And this is very much a a prefiguring of what Thatcher built and also a reaction to it and the sense that maybe we're going in the same direction in now. And that's why it's never been more important, mm. I think, as a film. Um, it's a film that I saw a couple of weeks ago now, and it's the film, you know, all of these films that we were reviewing, I've, I've seen pretty much within the last two or three weeks, and it's the film that sticks out the most for me, and it's the one I'm still thinking about and still trying to piece together. And as you said it's definitely going to take, I think, more than one viewing, certainly, to kind of yeah. make sense of everything. You know, I, I, you know, it's not it's not just about power struggles, um, kind of in society. There's kind of religious connotations in there as well. Um, about you know, at one point, Lang is talking to um, Sienna Miller's son, and you know, he asks, "Who's your father?" And you know, he points upwards. Um, yes, and <laughs> he's like it doesn't make any sense to him. And then obviously it's, it turns out, or it seems to be implied um, that he's um, uh, Royal's son. And the way he points up like that suggests that kind of, it's almost like he's not just the architect. He is the creator of this building. Yeah. He is kind of the all powerful being um, because for for so long in the film, he he we're told he doesn't venture downstairs, he doesn't leave, 
he's always upstairs in this kind of as it is heavenly picturesque um you know particularly the outsides um the gardens as it were um on the balcony of this building um and, and it's got horses and and flowers and trees and it's almost like the garden of eden out there yeah and you know yeah. so there is as i said there's religious connotations in there and um, you've obviously got the politics um and and the, the struggles between the different classes of society um and there's there's the wonderful shot where um the one of the upper class um citizens um I can't remember the, uh, the character's name, but he falls. He basically commits suicide and he falls. And yeah. the angle then almost switches the building on its head because mm. the top then seems smaller as he's, as he's falling and it kind of going further mm. and further away. Obviously the tops of the building, even though if, you know, if we're looking at the building as we are most of the way through the film, the top of the building is actually bigger and wider. Then the bottom, it almost, it's almost like, a, it's almost like a pyramid. The fact that the, the pyramid on its, on its, uh, tip, as it were, the tip yeah. is the bottom. But then obviously with him falling, it's almost like the, the other way. The, the, the building as he's getting further and further away and towards the ground, obviously it's, it, it's getting, uh, narrower. And so it's kind of described, you know, it's almost then kind of showing how you know, the, the top, the very top, you know, that kind of, we were, we were told about in the news, this, this, this like 0.1% of, of society that hold all the money and all the power. And so that kind of puts that into kind of, into an image where the top mm. of the building, that point of the building, um, that top layer, that top floor is that tiny, tiny 0.1%. And obviously, so as he's falling away and getting closer and closer to the bottom, that's where everybody else is. That's where the majority of the people is. And it's obviously, it's interesting that you say none of them are, none of them are poor. Not, not really. You know, they, they do live in this very lavish building. Um, um, Elizabeth Moss's character. Um, she's just a, a middle class family woman. You know, she can afford to be a stay at home mother. Um, and as you said, um, her husband that's played brilliantly by Luke Evans, um, obviously works for, for a, for a TV studio. So obviously they're all successful people in their own right. They wouldn't be living there otherwise. Um, but it's, it is, it's really interesting. And it's, it's one that as I said, I can't stop thinking about, and I'm sure there'll be, there'll be things that if I, when I watch it again, there'll be different things that I'll see and there'll be different points that I'll take away from it. And it's, I think so rare that a film does that nowadays. You know, all the, all the other films that we reviewed, they're, they're very, very simplistic. There's, they're not, not saying very much about anything, or, you know, not, not, not saying anything about society or politics or anything like that. Um, you know, we reviewed London's Fallen, for God's sake, in the first part of this episode. And this is a completely different beast. I, I think if, if, if there's one criticism, and I don't think it's, it's by any means perfect, and I think, I think the fact it's got flaws is part of why it's a masterpiece mm-hmm. in, in a weird kind of way. It's, if anything, one of the, one thing it does is it, it says almost too much for you to actually take in. It just, it throws so many things out there, some of which are very throwaway. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, essays will be written on this film, yeah. and it will, it will require a hell of a lot of, of investigation and research to look at it and to take everything in for you to really get all of the subtext and all of, all of the little things it's saying, because on first watch, you're just absorbing it because it's such a, it's such a ride. It's such an experience because it's, it's the, sh- the, the way it's shot and the way we, he chooses to, to use his camera and the way 
you know, he, he does these incredible montage sequences set to things like ABBA's SOS, oh, classical music, mm. and, you know, then done in different ways. And he does these incredible fast-cutting montage sequences that seem to erratically cut between all kinds of different people and things going on. And it's building up to a, to a crescendo point. And, you know, it, it, it's weird in the sense that it almost, it almost doesn't go anywhere for a while either. It, it, it's, it's, the plot takes a while to settle itself, much like the building. And it, so, so it's not, it's not perfect. And, but I think the flaws are what make it fascinating. And I think it's, it's, it's quite brilliantly flawed in some respects. And, and the way it all manages to come together and leave things so open in terms of, of what it's saying and have so much metaphor and subtext is, is phenomenal. And you know, it's, it's got, it's got a brilliant cast. And he, mm. like you said, Luke Evans is, is outstanding. I've never seen him this good. I mean, he's, He's usually in quite duff things, you know, whether it's Dracula Untold or Fast and Furious 6, although I do like the Fast and Furious films. But, you know, it, it's he's normally in goth, but he really here steps up and proves how good he is. And and yeah. the thing is... Sienna Miller as well, I think, was fantastic. Yeah, she's always she's always really good. She's coming to her own in the last few years. Jeremy Irons is always, you know, beyond reproach. He's great. So he's got a really good cast, you know, even like eccentrics like Reece Shearsmith, who's just brilliant in anything he does. But then everyone will look at Hiddleston, and while he's great... He's, he's, it's almost not about him in the end. He's mm. the, the whole point with Lang is that he's, he's, he doesn't fit in that he's neutral. You've got all, you've got these two extremist sides, you know, the, the uprising revolutionaries at the bottom and the, 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 the toffs at the top who, who dress up in French aristocratic gear and then don't let anyone through their private lift yeah. while they're riding around on a horse. You know, the, the, the wonderful British absurdity of it is beautiful to watch sometimes because it is so bonkers. But that's the entire point. But you've got all that, and Lang is in the middle, and he doesn't—he doesn't conform, and he kind of doesn't—he doesn't fit anywhere, and that's—that's that's kind of the point. And it's—it's it, just—it's just fantastic. I mean, it's—it's it, it's hard to explain, but it—it's. It, I left thinking, that's just brilliant, and I can't wait. I just can't wait to see it again. Mm. Uh, so that was High Rise, and up next, uh, the one you've probably all been waiting for, it's our review of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race. If we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. Versus man. Day versus night. You're psychotic. That is a three-syllable word for any thought too big for little minds. That's my review. See you later. <laughs> Fearing the actions of Superman are left unchecked, Batman takes on the Man of Steel while the world wrestles with what kind of hero it really needs. With Batman and Superman fighting each other, a new threat, Doomsday, is created by Lex Luthor. It's up to Superman and Batman to set aside their differences, along with Wonder Woman, to stop Lex Luthor and Doomsday, Doomsday from destroying Metropolis. Can I just say, you don't need to see the film now, guys. That's done. Okay? Mm. That's, that is it, right? Everything that you've just said, that's it. Okay? Don't bother. Just, just, just don't bother. Mm. Be, be, because the whole, the whole point is that Everything, everything, you've seen the film if you've watched the trailers. Yep. You, you, honestly, honestly, you have. You, you've seen the film. And, and that's, A, that's, that's its biggest crime. 
beyond the fact that it's not very good, that's its biggest crime. I don't know. It's 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 not it's not awful, and it's it's hard because I've never been a fan, and I'm still not a fan of Man of Steel. Um, I think it was two hours of absolute tosh. Uh, the first thirty minutes, obviously, basically all the stuff of Russell Crowe is good, um, and you know establishing Superman's backstory. And there are moments in this where, again, you know, there's some good stuff. But do we need to see Batman's backstory again? Do we need his origin story? I know it's a new, a new Batman. I know it. I know it's Ben Affleck and, and not, um, you know, the many, many Batmans that have come before him. But it's still the same story. That um, I almost feel that that was slightly unnecessary, and we could have gotten into the action a lot quicker. Um, for me. I still don't like Amy Adams as um, Lois Lane. She's just pointless in this film as well. Um, and Jesse Eisenberg, I don't know. I've, I only saw this film a couple of hours ago, so it's still very fresh in my memory. And Jesse Eisenberg, I still haven't decided whether I like him or not yet. Um, because there were moments where he was brilliant, and there was moments where he was hamming his shit and just completely took you out of um, kind of the film and it's there were moments actually where I did laugh um, not because it was funny but because it was awful Um, Mm. Jeremy Irons was delightful (laughs) he was brilliant Uh, I feel uh, Gal Gadot is that the right pronounce? Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot. There we go. Yeah. Is it Gal Gadot? Because I, I said Gal Gadot on, on Pickerfleet when we did this, and I wasn't sure. Yeah. So that's good. Gal Gadot. Yeah. Well, I went for yeah. Gal Gadot, so it's probably not that. <laughs> <laughs> Gal Gadot sounds a lot more classy. Uh, I thought she was great. She didn't do do all that much, but it kind of it kind of um, lays the foundations for her individual film, which I think is out next year or the year after. I don't know. It's it's not as bad as a lot of people were expecting it potentially could be. Um, and there are still people out there, and you're included, Tony, as <laughs> thinking that, yes, it was a tosh. <laughs> but I just hope for God that Civil War isn't bad. Because <laughs> I, I can then go, that's how you do it. <laughs> It won't. It won't be. Don't worry. The the the, the thing. I, I I do think it's tush, but I don't think it's terrible. And there's there's a big difference. You know, I talk about this at length to Shill um, on Pick a Flick, which is coming out tomorrow as we record, but it will probably be before this. Yeah. Um, talk about this at length. So I will give the cliff notes here. But really, it's not terrible. It's it, like Fantastic Four last year wasn't terrible either. They're, they're they're not terrible films. Terrible films are things like Unfinished Business. You know, <laughs> last year. Those are terrible films. This isn't terrible. This is just, it's pointless. And and the, the, the problem is that what, this whole thing is misconceived, right, from the ground up. The reason that Marvel are doing doing it better, and, you know, I'll, I'll probably be accused of being a Marvel apologist and a DC hater, and I'm really not, yeah. because in, I like the DC universe more. I really do. It's got more interesting characters. Batman is my favorite character, my favorite comic book character. But Marvel have did this the right way. You know, they built everything up to a point where you've got things like the Avengers, which was terrific and built everything to a point. Age of Ultron was the problem. And this has exactly the same problem as Age of Ultron did. And I'll be the first person to say that Age of Ultron was really, really underwhelming because it tries to do too much. And it's basically a trailer for the next 10 films. And this is the problem with Dawn of Justice is that it's not a movie in itself. It is a setup for 10 next films. And, 
you know, it makes mistakes that you know we're we're all from, I believe, from you know MZP, the writer's website. You know, that's where we met really. And one of the big things that we all used to share when we we're talking about screenwriting was you know the kind of one hundred and one mistakes that you can make as a screenwriter, and they make all of them in this. Things like random dream sequences in the middle of the film that that you have that I had to have a den of geek article explained to me after I'd finished watching. Right, and it's all very interesting stuff in terms of what it's setting up for the DC universe. But I sat there as somebody who doesn't read comics, going, "What's happening? What, 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 who's the what? Uh, what? What's okay? It's a dream. What?" Yeah. And it, it's when when you're doing that in a film that is supposed to be this big event that's about the two most famous comic book characters in the world who are supposed to be at loggerheads with each other for a rational, powerful, emotional reason. It's just not working. And and the, the thing is, I, I, Man of Steel, I rewatched the other day in preparation for this. And I, I, like you, Dan, liked parts of Man of Steel. And I liked it more the first time I watched it. And I like the Krypton stuff. And I like Kevin Costner and things like that. But most of it is absolute bobbins because it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't connect in any way. You know, I don't care about it all. It's really dour. It's that Zack Snyder kind of, let's blow everything up and everything will be fine. Let's let's throw a million things at you in your face, and you'll be you'll be dazzled by the flash of it. Oh, superheroes, cool, yeah! It's just not. It's not. Marvel do it better because they actually make you care about these people, and they're well casted and they're well acted. All through this, I just Superman was like an emo, right? Mm. He was just the most boring, dour, maudling guy I've ever ever watched. I, I, I you know, I just wasn't interested in him at all. I didn't believe the conflict between them. Lex Luthor, I'll answer your question, Dan, for you. He is irritating, okay? He's a fucking annoying Lex Luthor, and he's, he's <laughs> one of the worst, actually, right? And this is this is from the, coming from the fact that there, haven't, there hasn't been a, a, a Lex Luthor yet who's lived up to the character on screen, and he doesn't. So you've got all that mixed up in together. And the only reason to watch this film... Well, the only two reasons. One of them is Jeremy Irons as Alfred because he's brilliant, he's droll yeah. and, and funny. And the other one is Ben Affleck as Batman yeah. because Affleck's great. Or, and Bruce Wayne is, in, he could be preemptive this, but he could end up being the best Bruce Wayne because, because he's a, he's a Batman who has spent 20 years fighting for what he doesn't believe in anymore. And he's got to a point where he could, he could leave it all behind and he's, he's jaded. Yeah. And it's, it's a great point to begin Batman. And he's and he's great in the role. He just he just nails it completely. And I I would have happily watched the whole film with him, but when it's all wedged in with a million other things going on, I mean I didn't care about Wonder Woman. I'm not bothered. I'm not interested. Show me her backstory. Show tell me who she is. Don't let her just wander around in a slinky dress looking meaningfully at Batman for half of the film and then doing a few mysterious things and looking at a few YouTube videos of The Flash and all these other people. And I'm thinking, I don't care. I don't care. I came to watch this. I came to watch Batman versus Superman. And I've spent an hour and a half watching you all just piss about, quite literally in, in one instance, and I won't spoil why, but piss about is quite an interesting way of putting it. Just, and I'm at the point where I'm like, it's all just been a preamble to have a big, massive smackdown at the end, which you reveal in the trailer... Mm. And Zack Snyder came out and he said, "Oh yeah, we wanted we wanted to give you Doomsday in advance." I'm like, fuck off! Don't give don't give me the end of your film at the before I've even gone in there. It it just it annoys me, and I've, I've been I've been I've been accused of going in and, and being negative, and I was because it just pisses me off the way this has all been approached. Just pisses me off, mm. and it's made up 450 million globally already, and it's just like I, I give up because I just don't, I don't know what we have to do 
to to make people understand that this just isn't good enough no. when you've got Batman and Superman who should be they they, they just deserve better mm. because this is it's not terrible it has certain virtues but it's a big bowl of nothing in the end and I'm not interested. Do you, well, I was going to ask this: Do you think that it could potentially see an end to this whole combined universe type you know, MCU style? Um, approach because obviously you know Ghostbusters taking on and um, you know another number of films are kind of coming together to have this shared universe. But then, as you just said, it's made a ton of money, so <laughs> yeah. they're just gonna they're just gonna carry on doing it, and um, it's gonna it's gonna take something like Ghostbusters to absolutely fuck it up. No, I, I don't think it will. I, I, you know, I think Ghostbusters will be will, will make a fortune. It will be it will be liked by a lot of people. Mm. It will be perfectly innocent, harmless entertainment that doesn't reach the heights of the original. But a lot of people will lap it up. It'll probably be all right. You know, Paul Feig isn't a bad director. Spy was good last year. Mm. I'm sure it'll be fine. It just won't be anything near as good as the original. No. Star Wars will is already starting to layer in this, this expanded universe, and it will it will make a fortune. Yeah. And it will do it pretty well because the people involved are actually good creatives. Yeah. The people involved in this, certainly in Justice League and this, are Zack Snyder and David S. Goya, both of whom are talentless fucking hacks who basically have just got on in their careers because they they just prefer style over substance, and they 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 ride the coattails of other people's success. And unfortunately, their their movies make money. And they are given the keys to something that they really shouldn't be given, no. you know. And it, it, it's frustrating because yeah. you will have individual film, filmmakers who will make decent, hopefully decent films in the middle of it. You know, James Wan making Aquaman. James Wan's a good director. You know, he hopefully will make something good. Patty Jenkins, I think, will do a good job with Wonder Woman. But then you'll go back to Snyder and you'll have two or three hours of Justice League being epic fucking hollow nonsense. And I'll just think to myself, oh, what's the point? What's the point? It, it, it frustrating for all the reasons you said. The fact that they, they are just playing catch up to Marvel, effectively. You know, Marvel are ten years ahead, even though not not in literal terms. Although otherwise, when was that? Almost. Yeah, um, yeah almost. Um, yeah. And the, the fact is, they've taken their time. And of course, there have been low points. You know, four two was naff, and um, Iron Man two was unfortunately flawed yeah. because of all the problems they had on that film. And um, I'm sure. They, those aren't the last either. You know, as I said, I hope Civil War will be fantastic, and I'm I'm sure it will be. And actually, it's looking quite promising. You know, we've we've got um, you know a few movies that should be very solid, but you have got the third four film, which I'm worried that's going to be another misfire. It, uh, it, it's if it's as long as they learn the lessons that have that they've made. Yeah. You know, the, the, of the failures. It, you know, Civil War will be fine if it learned the lesson that that sank Age of Ultron. Yeah. And it could follow the same path. I'm not saying it won't. You know, it's got to be very careful because it's balancing a hell of a lot. It's trying to set up a hell of a lot as well. Mm. So, you know, it's not a guarantee. No. But I think it, I think it's got more talented people involved. Yeah. It, I, I think that this one does fall down for all the reasons you said it is that it's just there's there's not enough reasons to care about these characters um, mm. because unfortunately Carol, even though he he looks the part, he just he hasn't quite he hasn't quite grown into the role yet. Man of Steel failed mostly because he it just wasn't quite right. Him and Amy Adams weren't quite right. You know, I weren't not I'm not still not sold on you know them as a couple. Um, you know, they've got no chemistry. He's very bland. 
it's the supporting characters. And even though Affleck isn't obviously a supporting character in this season, he's much the main player um, as, as as Superman is. Um, it's the supporting players in both these films that actually are the saving grace of it. You know, we've just talked about Jeremy Irons in the first film. Um, you know, it was it was Costner and um, Russell Crowe, and and <laughs> that shouldn't be the way it is. You know, you've not got that issue um, in um, the MCU to that degree. You know, there's obviously people that argue that Tom Hiddleston is the, the strength of the four side of the films. Um, but I think Chris Hemsworth fits the role very, very well. He does a very good job as four. And obviously Robert Downey Jr. is fantastic as Iron Man. And um, Chris Evans has very much made um, Captain America his own. That's just not happened with Henry Cavill for some reason. Do you, do you know one of those? One of the things that all those films have, though, is, and Captain America is the closest example, probably, to the kind of Superman template mm. that in the in the Marvel universe, because he's the Boy Scout yes. and he's the defender of of things and things like that. But you know what they all have? They have a sense of humour. Mm. Now, one one thing that Man of Steel never has at any point is a sense of humour. It's I do, I describe it on my other my other podcast as basically it's it's like a fifteen year old boy was given two hundred million dollars and they said make something that's exciting and dramatic and funny and he went off and made something that is just an hour and a half of things blowing up mm. and it's and it's the, and a lot of it it's it's not it's not quite to that degree in this in this film but most but in the last. 30, 40 minutes, it is again. And I just sat there thinking, oh, here we go. It's it's another massive Titanic smackdown with no emotional resonance. And, you know, we, we're not at the point where we should, where we're made to care about what these people are going through. Just, just let it end. I think DC you know. are so worried about, you know, trying to be different, trying to do things differently from Marvel that actually they're not picking up on the things that they're doing right. Um, you know, they, they've, they've seemingly gone with this dark, um, kind of, um, universe as it were, you know, it, Christopher Nolan started it, unfortunately. And even though I think all those films are, are very good films and I'd argue that dark Knight, in particular is probably the strongest of all the kind of comic book, uh, universe films. Um, they've kind of taken his mantle of kind of, you know, dark and brooding, and they've applied it to a character that it just doesn't work with. And it's almost yeah. like they're scared to embrace the humour of Superman. And it, it was funny back in the day. And, and we look back at it now, and it looks hammy and, and a bit dated. But that's what his character is. It's a, it's a bit like why um, the Spider-Man um, franchise failed, um, the, the Amazing Spider-Man, because they, they again, took a character that shouldn't be dark and made him quite dark. And again, it's, it's, it's not just in, in kind of, um, the tone of the film, the literal saturation of the screen. You could barely make out the colors on Superman's, you know, on Superman's costume. And I remember watching a video about a year ago, maybe two years ago, where someone took Man of Steel and like upped the saturation, you know, me, you know, made it nice colorful. More mm. And it makes such a difference um, that, you know, in this, the action sequence is full flat because you can't actually see what anybody's doing. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's, it's almost like DC are, are so scared of what came before. They're, they're scared of repeating Green Lantern <laughs> that they've gone so far in the other direction that for a lot of people it's not working. That's exactly what it is. And there's no stopping it now. You know, it's a juggernaut. 
the the, the trainer set has left the station. But and and you know, I, I I hope I hope I can get some enjoyment out of some of it. But as it stands, the only thing I'm interested in is the Batman film with Ben Affleck because I think that will be good. Mm-hmm. And the rest, I uh, couldn't give a monkey's toss. If I'm honest. And that's Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice. <laughs> <laughs> um, it will be in cinemas, I'm sure, for a very long while yet, and I'm forever. Forever. Would not be surprised to see it as one of the uh, top-grossing films of 2016. Um, just fingers crossed, Civil War can uh, save us from a number one spot of a not very good film. But that wouldn't be the first time that's ever happened. Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In my in my head, I did just go save us, Russo brothers, save us. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all we've got time for on uh, this. Uh, installment of Black Hole Cinema. That's our monthly roundup for the month of March. We'll be back at the end of April, uh, where we'll be talking uh, about a number of films, including the Russo Brothers' Civil War. And we'll also be back for a mid-month special. We'll be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 2. With any luck, I'll be joined um, by our former co-host Emma Platt, as well as uh, Tom East and Amy Walker. So join us for that uh, during April. And uh, at the beginning of May, as I said, we'll have our uh, monthly roundup for April. Uh, so all that to look forward to and more. Uh, you can go to Twitter um, and like us at Black Hole Cinema. Uh, you can also go to the website. Uh, is, is it blackholepodcast.com? Have I got that right? That's that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's that. And also you can also check out the uh, other podcasts on the uh, Black Hole Media Network. Um, including, obviously, as we've mentioned in the podcast, Pick a Flick, uh, where Tony talked in depth uh, about Man of Steel. Uh, we, we said we'd only talk about it fleetingly, and we ended up talking about it for about 20 minutes, half an hour. So there we go. It was inevitable, wasn't yeah. it, really? Um, obviously, you can follow Tony on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Tony Underscore Black, um, if you want, really. I, all I really do is retweet everything else I put on my other podcasts. So, you know, it's not particularly interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, just just follow Black Hole Media if you want the overall scope of the Black Hole podcasts um, with all the different ones in there. So, yeah. And Chris, we can also follow you on Twitter at... Uh, higher underscore boy. So I... Uh, generally appear on stuff like Pick a Flick or Fail Critics or obviously Black Hole Cinema so generally I'm just floating about doing them to be honest Lovely Thanks very much gents for joining me and uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time Bye bye Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.